Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and we're coming to you from AJT Highlights. This is the April 2023 edition. As always, I'm joined by Roz Manon from the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And today, our, our guest fellow is uh, Daniel Galvez from University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Welcome to both of you. We have four really interesting articles to discuss in April's edition of AJT. The first two are going to be presented by, by Daniel, just to go through. It's first one's entitled Successful Pathways to Liver Transplant for Undocumented Immigrants by Kersnerman. I think I'm saying that right. Kersnerman et al. Then the next one is Effect of Vitamin K Supplementation on Serum Calcification Propensity and Arterial Stiffness in Vitamin K Deficient Kidney Transplant Recipients, a Double Blind Randomized Placebo Controlled Trial by Ilderink, Ilderink et al. I'm having trouble with pronunciation today. And so Dan will be uh, presenting on both of those. And then Roz will present the paper, ABO Genotyping Finds More A2 to B Kidney Transplant Opportunities Than Lectin-Based Subtyping by Joseph et al. And then I will finish us off with a cardiac paper, which is oxidative stress and related metabolic alterations are in induced in ex situ perfusion of donated hearts, regardless of the ventricular load or leukocyte depletion by Hitami et al. So uh, without further ado, Dan, I'd like to welcome you for to discuss the two papers. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Lisky, Dr. Manum. Awesome to be here. I was looking forward to, to the podcast. So we'll get started with the first one, uh, liver paper. It's a personal viewpoint paper. You said the title is Successful Pathways to Liver Transplant for Undocumented Immigrants. The authors, uh, Stanley Kernsman and the uh, Mount Sinai Group in New York. And to give uh, some background, uh, Mount Sinai in, in New York is well known for their approach with liver transplants in undocumented immigrants. Since uh, 2013, they have transplanted 16 undocumented immigrants. There's limited data on this subject, given the limited number of liver transplants in this patient population, which actually accounts for only 0.4% of all liver transplants between 2012 and 2018. So this is clearly a very complex and controversial topic. In this manuscript, uh, the group presents their experience and pathway for getting these patients transplanted. Now, the first thing they talk about is the immigration status and legal avenue by which uh, this patient population can obtain federal benefits through Medicaid. There's a law called Permanently Residing Under the Color of the Law, or PRUCOL, P-R-U-C-O-L, which was established by Congress in 1972, conferring non-U.S. citizens some public benefits, including Medicaid. However, in uh, 1996, a federal act ended eligibility for nearly all federal benefits for non-U.S. citizens. And states were left to determine what PRUCOL would look like in their states. Now, currently, the only states that allow PRUCOL individuals to access comprehensive Medicaid services are New York, California, Connecticut, Hawaii, Illinois, and Massachusetts. With California and New York contributing to 65% of all liver transplants for undocumented immigrants. Now, at Mount Sinai, once an individual is evaluated and deemed an appropriate medical and psychosocial liver transplant candidate, they are referred to a nonprofit legal partner to assess and explore their options with PUCOL, 
but it is key to note that this process can take several months. Now, once this nonprofit legal organization builds a case, it's presented to the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which can lead can also take uh, several months. And it's also important to note that currently UNOS does not restrict transplant listing based on immigration status. Now, what are some of the barriers the group identified for these patients to get transplanted? First, individuals might not want to apply for call given fear of deportation. This is one of the major ones. Uh, number two, there's an obvious language barrier where important medical information and instructions might be miscommunicated. And number three, uh, many individuals in this situation use the emergency department as their primary access to medical treatment. So by the time they present, it might be too late to start the process. Between 2013 and 2020, Mount Sinai has evaluated 82 patients and provided liver transplants for 16 undocumented adult recipients. The majority were men, Hispanic, and unemployed. Patients had lived in the U.S. for approximately 16 years before receiving the liver transplant. On average, it took approximately 268 days from the time of the evaluation and PUCOL approval. The mean meld was 24 on presentation and 37 at the time of transplant. The average length of hospital stay was 31 days, and there were no post-operative complications ascribable to immigration status, loss of insurance coverage, alcohol relapse, or poor patient adherence to post-transplant care. All the patients that continue to reside in New York continue to demonstrate good adherence to post-transplant care. Now, some of one of what are some general challenges and limitations these specific patient population experience? Undocumented patients with alcohol liver disease requiring rehabilitation often have difficulty accessing programs offering care for uninsured patients. Number one, two, difficulty obtaining PUCOL. If individuals use false identifying information to avoid you know, immigration issues, which happens more often than not. And three, the risk of deportation after transplant with potential limited access to medical treatment and post-transplant medications in, in their countries. So I think overall, this manuscript provides an excellent overview of the process and outcomes one of the most experienced uh, liver transplant centers has, has with uh, transplanted undocumented immigrants. Even though it's a complicated and potentially long process to get someone approved for it at one of the qualified approval states, it's clearly feasible. So I really applaud Mount Sinai's effort in going above and beyond getting these patients transplanted and also highlighting their effort in spreading their knowledge for the benefit of the centers and ultimately a patient population with a huge, uh, you know, pronounced disadvantages. Hey, thank you, Dan. That's, you know, something important to put together as a series because I know in Illinois, I don't know when you were fellow here, we had this come up a couple times um, and we're one of the states that is part of the pre-call. I was, I was curious as I was, I didn't realize there were so few states that have the allowance for this. Do you have any idea why that might be? Or it's probably something political, but <laughs> or money-wise. But any idea? Because it's just a handful of states. It's kind of disappointing. It is very disappointing. I think I think a big part of it is political, like you say. But I mean, I mean, if you if you see, I mean, New York, 
Massachusetts, Illinois, the states with a very diverse patient population. So I think, yeah, California. Example, they have identified the and California uh, the need. Yeah. I don't think I've lived in any state where it's been from by states' rights been supported. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think it's important. I mean, I, you can say people have different uh, opinions about this ethically, etc. But um, I mean, I you know, I believe it comes down to these these are people, and they're they you know they need help, and and if if they're living in the United States and working right. and they have met if they have insurance. I don't see, I, I think it's, I think the, the issue that you brought up of it being more difficult because they present later and they don't have their, the access to care really from the get go, which, which excludes a lot of these people, unfortunately, just from a standpoint of being able to manage them before and after, especially a liver transplant. And it almost seems like there needs to be a, a better way to provide care, uh, a care model that could evaluate them earlier and have something better in place than when somebody just presents and their MELD score is 40 and we have to figure it out for them. That's that's the situation that I've been in uh, a, a few times. Yeah. It makes it hard. I think it's also fair to point out that, you know, this patient population also contributes to the organ pool. Yes. Percentage of, of, of undocumented immigrants that are part of the donor pool. So, you know, it's equity is the right thing. No, it's very important that you brought that up. Very important that you brought that up because I remember when we had that was brought up when we had somebody present like this and a lot of our transplant team did not even know that. And so if they're allowing their organs to be used. They should be able to have access to organs. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it's that's equity. Well, that's, uh, I'm really glad Mount Sinai published this because, uh, I think that we're going to see more and more of this, um, mm. going on. All right. So do you want to move to your second paper? A little bit different. <laughs> A little bit different. Switching organs, switching gears. Mm. All right. The second, uh, paper is a kidney paper titles effects of vitamin K supplementation on serum calcification propensity and arterial stiffness in vitamin K-deficient kidney transplant recipients, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial. The authors, uh, Dr. Elderlink, probably pronouncing that wrong too, at all in the Netherlands. And to give some background on the topic, it's well known that vascular calcifications with concomitant increased cardiovascular risk is an important cause of premature mortality amongst kidney transplant recipients. Vitamin K deficiency has been linked to progression of vascular calcifications, and it is seen in up to 91% of kidney transplant recipients. One of the mechanisms by which this happens has to do with carboxylation of matrix GLA protein, also known as, known as MGP, which is, which is a potent inhibitor of vascular calcification. So this carboxylation process is dependent on vitamin K. So in the case of vitamin K deficiency, it does not happen. Uh, resulting in progression of vascular calcification. So it is hypothesized that vitamin K supplementation in these patients may be an easy, safe, and affordable way to alleviate vascular calcification. This effect has been studied in non-kidney transplant patients. However, data on on kidney transplant recipients is sparse. Now, as the title uh, says, this was a single-centered, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial 
that investigated the effect of vitamin K supplementation on serum calcification propensity, which is a test that determines intrinsic calcification propensity, also known as T50, as well as the effect on arterial stiffness in vitamin K deficient kidney transplant recipients. Now, they randomized 40 vitamin K deficient adult kidney transplant recipients with functioning grafts, 20 to a vitamin K supplementation group and 20 to a placebo group. They received either vitamin K supplement or placebo for 12 weeks. Primary outcome was change in serum calcification propensity at 12 weeks after initiation of, of therapy or treatment with vitamin K. And a secondary outcome was a change in arterial stiffness, which was measured by pulse wave velocity using, using a mobile graft device at 12 weeks too. With the results, the authors uh, found no significant difference in change in serum calcification propensity over 12 weeks. However, there was a significant treatment effect in change in arterial stiffness. Now, amongst the discussion points, some of the potential explanations for the lack of treatment effect are, are the following. First, the study included kidney transplant recipients with advanced vascular calcification and stiffness. And in this case, vitamin K might be able to prevent, but not necessarily reverse calcification. Therefore, it, it might be safe to speculate that prevention of new calcifying lesions with a long-term follow-up may show effects of vitamin K on calcification progression not seen in the current study. Number two, another explanation could be that serum calcification propensity does not reflect all pathways involved in the complex process of vascular calcification. So vitamin K might still have a beneficial effect through other calcification pathways. This theory might be backed up by the beneficial effects seen in arterial stiffness. Finally, animal models have shown that vitamin K attenuates the severity of inflammation in mice. So hypothesizing that by reducing inflammation, we might be reducing inflammation-mediated calcification. Now, in conclusion, I think this is a, a great foundational trial for future phase three clinical trials that include a larger number of patients. As a surgeon, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this, this vitamin K topic is not something I was very familiar with, and it will definitely be something I will keep in mind and be on the lookout for future studies, as this is potentially a very low cost and safe intervention with significant clinical impact. That's a great summary of this article. And I appreciate, you know, your comments. It, it's not an area that I had really paid attention to, but it is of interest. There was actually a, a paper I don't think we had on the podcast, also in AJT back in 2021, that did that was a larger randomized trial focusing more on vascular stiffness as sort of a readout. Um, that was by Lees and colleagues. Again, it was a single center randomized control with placebo. So whenever you see those sort of negative outcomes, and specifically the focus was vascular stiffness, here was calcification. So, uh, you know, again, I think the biggest difficulty sometimes in these studies is the baseline that patients come in, as you point out. And certainly, if you're at centers where you have, and, and there may be a center-specific effect. So if your center is getting patients transplanted very quickly and effectively, and they're not on dialysis very long, there may still be a point, you know, that they can be fixed. You know, I wondered if anybody, and I hadn't had time to do a literature review, so I'm not quizzing you. It might be something to think about in the chronic kidney disease patient population where I don't know if there's been studies done in the native kidney 
or if people have thought about this on dialysis, where you clearly have this ongoing issue. And again, I can't remember the, the mechanism. So some of you all that are listening, it might be something worth taking a minute and reading about because it's come up now in a couple of different countries as an alternative strategy to mitigate long-term cardiovascular negative outcomes in our patients. Yeah, I was wondering in looking at this too, is what is the the long-term, obviously this is a just kind of a, you know, it's a randomized trial, which is great. But the question is, what is a long-term benefit in those who have less stiffness and their, their arterial stiffness, like on their blood pressure or kidney transplant outcomes? I think they would have to probably do a long, a longer-term study, I imagine, uh, or a longer follow-up. Although people who are vitamin K deficient, there's, it's the, really the, really the, obviously the only way you can get that way is through diet or medications or liver disease. I mean, actually, vitamin K deficiency is for for liver. As long as you're replacing it, the liver will, and the liver is functioning, it'll make vitamin K dependent factors. Hmm. So it's really a lot of it's really dietary. It's almost like these patients need, you know, dietary intervention afterwards to supplement vitamin K. I also wonder yeah. if there's a practical aspect of this. You know, we've got so many people anticoagulated. You know, for yeah. many, many, many different reasons. And I think the the worst part is you have a, a warfarin patient, a coumadin patient admitted, and a, an overzealous person vitamin K, vitamin K, and then yeah. you're like, oh my god! And and so I can yeah. imagine if I were a pharmacist on the the ward and and I was proposing giving everybody vitamin K, they might get a little uh, antsy in terms of all the side effects. But yeah, to be sure, continued, sure, to be continued for sure. Okay, well, thank you, Dan. Um, Roz, do you want to? Move to yeah. Your, the yeah. ABO. So yeah. So my paper is entitled "ABO Genotyping Finds More A2 to B Kidney Transplant Opportunities Than Lectin-Based Subtyping" by Joseph et al. So this is a multi um, a multi uh, PI um, or multi investigator study that across that crosses a couple of continents, and I think it addresses the you know that we know that transplant requires ABO compatibility, and the way we determine A and B is through the oligosaccharides that are on the surface of red cells, as well as vascular endothelium, and as some groups have shown across different tissues. And, and this paper, it's kind of important to frame, and, and, and as well as in other countries, the, the frequency of blood types. So A is about 40, 42%. O is about 40. AB is the rarest at 4%. And then B is about 10%. So um, and, and quite a number of African-Americans and Asian-Americans are have B blood, and obviously that puts them at a disadvantage because there's less B organs. So, so you need to think about that. And so this paper tries to address this access. And then about 20 or maybe more years ago, I want to say they started this at Kansas City, uh, the notion that A blood type consists of A1 and A2. And A2 accounts for about 20 to 30% of all A uh, individuals. And A2 is also interesting because it has a significant reduction in the expression of A antigen on red blood cells. So it's less frequent and it's less highly expressed. And so that started this whole notion of putting A2 into B kidneys. And there was actually a variance that was done initially. It was a local variance. And then in 2014, because of the clinical adoption of A2 into B, selected B recipients who didn't have high anti-A titers. Uh, they showed sustained long-term graft function without um, 
hyperacute rejection. And so, again, even with that allocation scheme, B blood type is still felt to account for quite a bit of transplant inequity in ethnic groups. And the way we usually do typing is through lectin typing. So if you remember your college biology, lectins are proteins derived, um, I think, primarily from plant-based sources that um, interact with certain oligosaccharides and they cause agglutination in, in vitro. And so there is a specific anti-A1 lectin, D by, by, uh, by fluorus that agglutinates A1 and A2. And again, high strength of this lectin um, agglutination typically identifies A1 individuals because A2, again, the expression of A is much lower. And so um, the way it's done in the lab is there's like a zero to four scale. It's a little bit somewhat subjective. And, you know, a three to four is considered high and a zero is considered weak. And weak is considered non-A. It doesn't prove you have A2. It's just considered you don't have A1, so you must have A2. So um, there's also genotyping opportunities now. And so this paper looks at uh, genotyping methods initially by PCR uh, and looks at the concordance of anti-A1 lectin typing and with both genotyping as well as, in the end, some flow cytometry. And I won't get into all the nitty-gritty details, but um, they have uh, several cohorts, a very large deceased donor cohort of several hundred, and then a living donor cohort and of about 250. And then they also look at discordant samples where in these pathology labs that do blood typing, they identify patients where they got sometimes weak, sometimes strong and they look at their results. So the, the gist of the paper is in table one, uh, which shows deceased donor typing. And they found that um, when you compare the lectin typing, uh, you identified about 13% of individuals are A2, but if you actually genotype them, it goes up to 22%, so which is reflective of about a 65% increase in the detection of A2 by using genotyping. And again, uh, you know, weak A1 lectin in the deceased donor is considered, you know, could be A2O, but they look at the strength of the genotyping then in table two versus the PCR genotyping. And they identify that a negative predictive value of a non-reactive lectin is means it's not A1. And like how, and likewise, a very strong reactivity, 96%, a very strong meaning three to four has a positive predictive value of about 96% that you're A1. And then when you have a weak signal, the, the positive predictive value falls quite dramatically. And it's really hard to detect who's really A2. And so 15% will be detected as a positive predictive value. And utilizing PCR, you can actually increase the detective ability. And living donors are a little bit different. The distribution is probably less, less frequent. Here, they identified that 22% of individuals had genotype A2. The positive predictive value of a weak test was significantly lower, only about uh, 3%. So why is this and why are the detection capabilities different between populations? And, and that they kind of talk about that towards the end of the paper. But again, I think one of the considerations is that deceased donors may have been transfused, and that may affect the uh, lectin uh, distribution, maybe because they had more time in the lab to sort of fuss around with a, maybe a potentially discordant result. And then finally, they look at these discordant samples where they had weak results or conflicting results, and that's in table three. 
And 82% of these weaker conflicting were genotyped as A2O. With next-gen sequencing, they actually identify very rare A2 subtypes. It's probably not worth my mentioning them, but if you read the paper, they're in there. And then they try to do a titration, which they have these really pretty figures, figure three, looks um, at some of the distribution of these A's and non-A, you know, A1s and A2s. But they actually do a titration in, in, in their hands, a cutoff of one to four is of the lectin is really not the antibody. The lectin is really where you start seeing bleeding in of A2 to non, between A2s and A1s based on genotyping. So I think I can summarize this by saying that genotyping is clearly superior than anti-A1 lectin typing. And the, le- and the typing is done, you know, in the blood bank. And, you know, A2 has been misclassified. I guess that's not really novel, but the frequency of it between within deceased donors, which it's more commonly misclassified versus living donors is important. Again, maybe the relation to transfusion or maybe variation in A2 antigen across an individual. It's not really clear. And so, you know, this paper doesn't call for a dramatic change in blood typing because B works fine. Um, but the idea is that maybe genotyping of a of a donors may be something that groups should you know consider implementing, and so that you know is it a possibility that the blood bank has a typing on the donor, and then the, the potential recipient hospital or one of the typing labs that's getting the the donor information can just run the genotype analysis because the turnaround is pretty quick, just like you would for HLA, and maybe they can identify this simultaneously. And I think that we have precedents of using genotyping, um, certainly individuals in, in, in major trauma that have been hypertransfused labs can do genotyping. It's allowed by UNOS rules. And so I don't know if necessarily every A donor needs to be looked at or whether there should be consideration. And they actually ran sort of a, a thought experiment of looking at, you know, if, if 6,500 donors that were A were noted in 2002 had been genotyped, it's potential that a thousand of those individuals might have been A2 based on their calculations, and then those would have increased the pool of Bs. However, as a philosopher, Josh, I know you're saying, well, okay, Roz, so they moved those organs to the Bs. What happens to the A's? So, you know, we need more organs. That's, I think, the most important aspect of all of this work. But again, a consideration that if we're thinking about access to individuals that are really, you know, at a loss in terms of having sufficient organs, primarily because of a biological aspect, maybe this is one way to consider mm-hmm. circumvent that issue. I was curious. I was trying to read to find out if if any organ transplants have been done in this setting yet, A2 to B. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Yeah. It's yeah. it's sort of like a routine, and in fact, in all of our beings, I mean, through genotyping. Through, oh, through I, that I don't know. I know yeah. that you know at UAB the big thing was is you know just the anti A titers, and they, there's two ways of looking at anti A through two different techniques, and that was always like a sort of an area of dispute of should we use this set of titers versus this, and not to game the system, but to be more accurate. But um, I'm not aware. I mean. There may have been transplants I've been involved with that have been the donors been genotype for blood type, but I may not know. Mm, it. Yeah, they had they cite examples in in the paper for sure. Mm-hmm. So, how big of an impact do you think this will have? I mean, it, I'm sure donor genotyping is not cheap, 
Uh, no, maybe. but you know, but so much of it is mechanized, and the HLA labs now are doing next-gen sequencing, and this was PCR-based genotyping, so you could have it done in a rapid turnaround. Plus, the HLA lab probably is is in the right position to do this, where they're mm-hmm. already getting you know donor DNA, and so you know to do their HLA typing. So I wonder if this could be something, and and whole blood, hopefully you have enough leukocytes to do that. So you would imagine that you could mechanize this if this is something, first of all, we'd need UNOS policy agreement, and you'd have to have an adoption and a protocol in HLA labs of how you would envision doing this. And and is it on every A donor? That may not be really viable. Maybe even on living donors, if a living donor stepped forward, maybe we should be considering this if 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 their recipient is a B rather than swapping them internally or putting them in a, in a paired donation situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, we'll see if this uh, be interesting in we'll five see years. If the podcast, whether, right. We'll see if this podcast has impact on clinical practice. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Then finally, um, really interesting paper out of a group in Edmonton, um, Alberta, Canada on looking at Norma Thermic XC2 heart perfusion and sort of the uh, what are the uh, metabolic or changes that occur in that situation compared to those in to compared to in vivo heart transplant setting or or reperfusion settings? And the the concept here is that this um, normothermic XC2 heart perfusion ESHP is it's an emerging technology and it allows uh, preserving. The donor donated heart in a, in a beaded state, preventing preservation related cold ischemia. So it's, it's kept, the heart is kept beating and there's perfusion to the organs, including perfusion to the coronary arteries, which keeps the, 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 the donor heart going that could, could be potentially used. But there's, there's concern that cardiac function declines gradually during this procedure. The concept is that this, um, deterioration that is observed could enhance, uh, could, uh, or understanding why this occurs, there may be pathways that could be um, interrupted that could improve cardiac function in, in this clinical setting that is in- increasingly being used in practice. And sort of the thought was that, the, the hypothesis is that inefficient energy metabolism and inflammation and oxidative stress are the reasons why Cardiac function decreases with with this uh, with with this type of procedure, the XC2 heart perfusion, and so obviously the the insight to which is uh, normothermic regional perfusion, where the heart is actually reanimated, is has become of interest in terms of multiple centers in the U.S. starting to do this, and we've we've uh, presented on this before in AJT highlights and. So the, the question is, is, is that model where you have actually a working heart, a pumping heart versus an XC2 model where the pump is external? What are the differences in, um, cardiac function and also some of the metabolic parameters between those groups? And, um, could that inform clinical practice because of the, the increase in, in normothermic regional perfusion? And so what this group did is this is a, uh, porcine model, uh, that that tested four different study groups. Um, there's this WM, which is a working model. So meaning, uh, the heart, uh, 
the hearts were paced at 100 beats per minute and maintained in a loaded state uh, over the remainder of the preservation period, um, as opposed to the XC2 model where there was a just control of the pump externally uh, to a desired left atrial pressure and, and aortic pressure. And then the comparison groups were in vivo control group, which were samples from healthy, non-ischemic, non-perfused porcine left ventricles, again, to serve as normal heart control samples. And then they did an experiment just in the um, working model group of leukocyte-reduced perfusate to see if this would have any difference in, in outcomes. Um, and I don't want to go through all of the details here, but it was fairly clear that the myocardial function was better in the working model group compared to the non-working model group. There were significant improvements or significant differences in cardiac index and stroke work with this working model where the heart is actually being paced. There were some other metabolic parameters that were different. Not a lot of them. There was a lot of statistically insignificant uh, differences between the working model and the non-working model group as well as between these models and the in vivo uh, control group. Um, but some of the, some of the noticeable sort of differences were that, that the during myocardial function during ESHP, as well as cardioprotective mechanisms were, were better preserved in the working model through different markers of oxidative stress and anabolic pathways. So it seemed to correlate that with improved cardiac function. In this, in this model, when, when you're comparing the two, the other thing that the, this, uh, leukocyte reduced model, um, did not seem to have any real, did not attenuate tissue oxidative stress or pro-inflammatory cytokines and did not improve functional preservation. So I think that was sort of an important group to, to include. And so the, ultimately what they've shown here is that this working model of of having the heart actually be pumping itself during the preservation process uh, probably has some benefits on on cardiac function and some of the metabolites associated with that, like less inflammation, less oxidative stress, were associated with that improved cardiac function compared to the XC2 model. And of course, this is you know these were this is a pig study; these were not transplants putting them in another uh, pig or transplanting and seeing if they're, if the graft worked better. But it does uh, raise the concept of um, having the heart actually work <laughs> during uh, preservation. It's a little bit like exercising uh, is good during the preservation process to keep the heart going. So it, it it functions better and it and it's more metabolically able to handle the stress. Again, the main questions are, is this a next steps? It will obviously be a clinical, clinical studies that look, that collect these samples and look at these parameters in human, in humans and human transplant. But it, it I, what was nice is that it gave, um, some mechanistic background as to why there may be a difference if the heart is pumping versus beating versus not beating and maybe supporting the concept of normothergic thermic regional perfusion where you actually have uh, reanimated the heart. So I thought it was an interesting study. Uh, I actually conferred with uh, John Kabashigawa, um, obviously one of the leading transplant cardiologists in the 
the country. And he thought the paper was important, uh, because it really, it, it goes down. They know that the, the working model has better cardiac function, but the, the question as to why and what are all the, the, the different, uh, pathways that could be explaining it, um, that was, this paper helped answer at least some of them. Well, great job, Josh, because you're neither a cardiologist nor a perfusionist. So That's kudos true. to you. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm impressed. So this whole white cell depletion didn't in the perfusate didn't really have any protective benefit, at least. It, it did not. Yeah, the no. thought was maybe depleting less it with less, less inflammation, but it didn't seem to have much of a benefit to it. I imagine there's some, and I, I don't know this is the, the clinical application of that would be, um, you can use leukocyte reduced, you know, blood when you're transfusing during transplants or during, during the, during the, um, perfusion. I don't know, Dan, do you have any thoughts about that? Is that something that is, has some clinical relevance? Cause I think they were just looking at the inflammatory component of this, but yeah, I mean, we try. At, North, at Northwestern, we, we, we try to get, uh, look, reduced blood products whenever we're transplanting any of the liver transplant or kidney transplant patients, but it's not, not always possible to get all the blood samples we need for, for liver transplants to, to have it be look reduced. But I do think it's interesting because as with other organs, right? With liver, kidneys, the pumps or, um, the machine perfusion we're seeing, the, the closer it gets to, to physiologic, the better the organs seem to do. Mm-hmm. Livers, when we're using these DCD, quote unquote, extended criteria livers that we're putting on, on pumps, so the normal thermic with blood oxygenated, we're able to rehabilitate the liver or see how it behaves, right? It's, it's a similar, similar mm-hmm. um, concept and with the kidneys as well, putting them on pumps with um, oxygenated perfusion, they seem to be to do better. So I think this is where, where this heart cardiac pump paper is, is, is going and will be definitely interesting to see when they start actually testing in humans. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly maybe addressing these metabolic dysfunction, which I know is a big area of interest in, in kidney research, as well as the, the guy, the guys and gals that do liver in a box is, you know, what's the secret cocktail? Cause once it's out of the body, what can you do to mitigate some of this? Uh, oxidative stress. And I suspect that's something else. I, I think the other issue where this is going to come into play is, is not, you know, we usually think of heart donation as brain dead donors, but now there's an increased use in donation after cardiac death, which is complicated. And so certainly, you know, having an opportunity to do some stabilization or whatever uh, in the DCD situation may be, you know, really critical as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting, diverse papers as, as always for AJT. And thanks to both of you for presenting. And I think we will, we'll sign off and see everybody back in, in May for the next edition. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you very much. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at mjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.